But the almighty and the pure white tea. She never drink forever, be nobody wifey. She won't have been a pretty much an artist on me. Play you like a villain because she got in a way. Tonight, I am in a way. Line to buy mine and I grind. Tonight, I'm my father. Depending on how you owe me, I'm glad that I'm coming down. Can't let no one come control me. Fight it by falling slowly. If ever you are in doubt, remember what mama told me. Brown, Brown skin, skin girl, your skin just like pearls. Your back against the world. I never tried you for anybody else. Brown, Brown skin girl, your skin just like pearls. The best thing in the world. I never, I never trade you for anybody else. For nobody else. Okay, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Political Princess Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Azza, and we are here to spill tea at the intersection of politics, policy, and pop culture. We have a lot to talk about today, so we're going to jump right into the first segment, the people's politics. Class is in session. So, today for the people's politics, we're going to start off with a little bit of a midterms update. I know you guys are probably tired of talking about the midterms or listening to about it, but it is extremely important because they're still going on and they set the tone for the next two years until the next presidential election. And boy, has there been some tea that's come out about who's going to be running. We're going to get into all of that. So, to start off with the runoff election... Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are in a runoff election because neither reached the 50% threshold needed to win the seat. Even though Raphael Warnock got the most votes, he still needed a 50% of the vote. It's a Georgia law. They can't change it. So the next election day is going to be December 6th. If you go to the Political Princess podcast on Instagram, scroll down a little bit. I'm actually going to pin it until December 6th. Please, if you are a Georgia resident, Go to my page to find out the early voting times, information about voter registration and all of that, so you can go ahead and cast your ballot. Unfortunately, if you weren't registered before the midterm elections, you were not eligible to vote in the runoffs, but it's okay. That doesn't mean you still can't get the word out there and make sure that everybody who was registered but did not vote in the main elections votes in the runoffs. So that is that for that election, and... Good luck to Mr. Warnock because we are pulling for him because we need him. We need him, Georgia. Okay, update about Congress. So it has come out that the Republicans have won the House. Boo, tomato, tomato, tomato. But it is okay because we still have the Senate. We won the Senate, which makes the Warnock... Um, Walker election race not as like sexy and glamorous anymore because it's not needed anymore to win the Senate but it's still very important because having that Democratic seat will ensure that we have the leg up to keep Georgia blue in 2024 because if you guys remember Georgia turned blue for the first time in I believe over two decades during the last presidential election when Biden won so we want to keep that momentum up so it's still very important 
for Warnock to win this runoff election, even though the Democrats have attained the Senate and the Republicans have the House. Which brings me to some Nancy Pelosi tea. And I posted about this because I wanted to know what Miss Pelosi was going to do. Because if you guys don't know, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. And the Speaker of the House is basically the leader of the House. Yeah, the leader of the House. She's the Speaker of the House. She kind of, you know, keeps the show going, oversees everything. She's the boss lady in the House. So I was wondering, because the Republicans have the House... What Nancy Pelosi was going to do if she's going to run for a House minority position. But I was thinking to myself, I was like, if I was the Speaker of the House for over 10 years, why would I want to go and kind of downgrade to minority leader position? You know what I'm saying? So that's what I was, you know, hypothesizing. And she did come out and say that she was not going to be seeking a leadership position in the House minority so it's going to be interesting to see the races for who wants to be the new Republican Speaker of the House and the Democratic House Minority Leader because the minority party has a leader and then the majority party has a um, leader as well. They have a leader, but the Speaker of the House is the person who kind of runs the whole show. All right, moving right along, y'all. We good. We get up and through, up and through. Donald Trump. Donald Trump has announced his bid for the presidency in 2024. What the fuck? <laughs> He's... Donald Trump is like a cockroach that just won't fucking die no matter how much raid, no matter how many of your mama slippers you done throwing at the motherfucker. He just won't die. And... But at the same time, I wasn't as shocked to see that he was going to rerun in 2024 because he just seems so, he's the type of arrogant, he's the type of arrogant person that would do that. Like, just think so much of himself to run, which doesn't make any sense as to how far he thinks he's going to go. Because if you guys remember, most of the Trumpies that were in Congress got voted out and do not hold those seats no longer. They're Democrats have the the House, um, the Senate, and even though the House is Republican, there wasn't a red wave. Republicans are talking about this concept called a red wave, which means a wave of red seats across the country, meaning the Republicans swept it. But a lot of the seats that Republicans won were were pretty close fights, so it's not as much as a red wave as possible, and we still have turnover time to get people to, you know, come on over to the to the to the good side where we have cookies and shit. So we could go ahead and hopefully get the house back in two years. So that is going to be difficult for him to get that approval because even Georgian governor Brian Kemp has separated himself from Donald Trump. So is Donald Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, and his daughter, Ivanka Trump, have all separated themselves and kind of came out with the disapproval sentiment about his rerunning. So this is going to be interesting. I, he does still have a really large hold over the conservative voters in the country. A huge, large, huge, 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 large hold. There's a lot of people who are still waving around Trump flags, even though he lost. He lost real bad. They're still waving around his flag. So it's just all going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. And I'm going to be here documenting it with y'all. All right. So today for the People's Politics segment, I also wanted to go into, 
I want to kind of skip over more of the politics part and talk more of the people part. Because we're going to get into political organizing and activism and how I got into it, how you can get into it if you're interested in starting, and just all of the things that come with that. So how I got into organizing. I got into organizing when I was about 17 years old. Well, to go back, back, back to medical medical school, because I was in medical school at nine years old. To go back to middle school, um, I actually ran with my best friend, Sienna Rosa. I ran for student body vice president, and she ran for student body president. So that was kind of like my first taste of, you know, being a, being a boss lady, running governments and stuff. And it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it, and I just has always I've always have had a love for politics and humanitarianism and organizing work because my father was, is a political organizer back in our home country of Cameroon, and he worked on the Obama campaign. So we had Obama T-shirts, watched all the speeches, and we were really involved. So I just grew up in a household that gave me no choice but to be a political activist. You know what I mean? Shout out to my parents if you're listening. If you're listening, stop listening because I'm about to say a lot of things in this episode that's going to piss you off. So go ahead and save yourself now. Okay, they're gone. Okay, cool. Let's continue. So fast forward a little bit to when I'm 17 now and me and a really good childhood bestie, Hannah Batar. We were sitting in our honest English class and we had a project. And for our project, we had to create an organization that helped the community. I'm not sure too much what the specifics were, but we had to create an organization. And we came up with JNH in the Beginnings, which was supposed to originally be a fashion show, I think. And it was so widely popular across all of her periods of the same class that we decided, okay, let's make this, let's make this shit shake for real. And we created JNH in the Beginnings where we did community fundraisers to raise money for natural disaster victims, but primarily care packages for people experiencing homelessness. And we did that for a while until, you know, senior year came and we kind of went our separate ways and kept the page up for memories until, you know, post insightful information. And then George Floyd happens. Then we reignite our nonprofit. But to get into detail and more about my personal activism um when we kind of stopped a little bit because of senior year applying for colleges and you know yada 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 I was a speech and debate student I did speech and debate junior and senior year of high school I was kind of that girl in speech and debate I ranked like First in my in my league for dramatic interpretation. I know it's not funny. Dramatic. <laughs> Who would have guessed, right? Who would have freaking guessed? For dramatic interpretation and 18th in the country at one nationals at NITOC and then top 50 in the country at NSDA, which is the big, big one. The big, big nationals. And so being that type of environment where people care about politics and care about what's going on and they're going out of their way to join a club to talk about these things. It kind of fostered an environment that made me step outside of my comfort zone fully to really stand on the things that I believed in and to learn more about things that I needed to know in order to grow as an organizer. 
So I got into gun violence prevention because my senior year of high school in 2018, if you guys remember, that was the year of the Parkland, Florida school shooting. And it was very traumatic. I believe it happened on Valentine's Day. I was in school. Like, I was remember being in the classroom, in my speech in the teacher's classroom, with her projector, with the C- with CNN on, watching all of this unfold, and just being sick to my stomach. And it had turned out that when we were going to nationals that year, it was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is about 30 minutes, I believe, from Parkland. And we had ended up going to Parkland, taking a swamp boat tour, driving around the city, um, just getting familiar with the area. And it was just a very eerie feeling being in Parkland. And at a pre-tournament event, Parkland students, survivors, who were also speech and debate students, came to do a presentation. And that's where I learned about Students Demand Action for Gun Safety and, and March for Our Lives. And during there, I signed up for text alerts just to, you know, be in the loop of everything going on. They had a summit going on in Oakland, California, and I ended up, you know, driving over there and attending the summit and really deciding that this is what I want to do. I want to be in organizing. I want to do my part because that event touched me greatly. And I started organizing with SDA. And when I had ended up, back when I was saying we disbanded our organization because of you know college and stuff, when I'd end up transferring to the illustrious Clark Atlanta University, I had started the first ever HBCU group of students demand action for gun safety on my campus. So that was really cool that I was the first HBCU student to do so. And I was really deep into organizing and gun violence prevention organizing primarily, even though I did other work and spoke at events of other movements. That was how I kind of got into it. And I always get people asking me all the time, like, what do I do? How do I get into organizing? And first things first, I would say that organizing is is something where it's kind of a passion project. You have to be passionate about it. It has to affect you greatly. Or you just have to care a lot because we have a lot of allies and a lot of movements who it doesn't necessarily affect them, but they care about it so much that when the work gets hard, and when I tell you all the work gets hard, when you're hearing about unconstitutional and unlawful death after unlawful death, it gets hard to sit there and listen to that shit. So you have to care deeper about the greater purpose to keep moving forward through it in order to keep your mental sanity. So you have to love what you're doing. So I would implore you to do some soul searching on what causes drive you. Start there. What causes drive you? Then after you pick a what cause or causes, because you can be in more than one movement that drives you. Then I would look at the organizations, grassroots, nonprofit, all of the above, and we're going to dig deeper into the differences of those, those type of organizations in your area who are already doing the work. It is essential that you find organizations that are already doing the work so you can learn. Do not go into organizing thinking that you're going to start a protest and create a mass movement on your own, on your soul back, and be MLK. Like, no, you have to start by being a student. So 
find these organizations, go to their meetings, read their bylaws, get familiarized with what they do and the legislative and social impact that they have in your community. Go to a meeting, meet the people, learn about it. Then and at that point, you can decide whether if you want to start your own group after you have become knowledgeable and you've read articles and read books, not tweets and Instagram infographics. You read books and you're familiar with the movement you are immersing yourself in. Then you can decide whether if you want to create your own organization or join an already established one. Um, at this point, when you're going to create your own organization, then you have to kind of figure out if it's going to be grassroots, nonprofit, or it's going to be more like a corporate type of entity. To go back a little bit from what, what I was saying, um, to talk about joining a group that's already established, that's kind of easy. You just join the group, you go to their meetings, there's not much of the legwork that you have to necessarily do to establish the organization. So you could just jump right into what they're doing, ask them to give you more opportunities to maybe write some op-eds, control the social media, you know, get more experience in organizing and take some leadership positions. That's if that's the route you want to go to. Okay, jumping back to starting your own organization. Figure out if you want a grassroots organization, a nonprofit organization, or you want to be associated with a corporate entity. And the differences are that a grassroots organization are organizations that are basically fed by the community, are not really too tied to the legal legalities of it. You don't have to really file paperwork. It's community donations, community involvement, everything rooted in the community, right? So... A good example of a grassroots organization would be Good Kids Mad City in Baltimore. I love them. So shout out to Good Kids Mad City. They're a great example of a grassroots organization. A nonprofit organization is which one that I have um, is a government recognized nonprofit organization with the tax ID to get for people who donate you to get tax write-offs. You have to file legal paperwork in order to become one of those. My organization was a grassroots organization for the first, I believe, three and a half, four years of its five years of being up and running. Um, and then we moved into a nonprofit organization for a couple of reasons. The reasons are that when you are a grassroots organization, it's kind of really hard for you to expand into um, other cities and to even get like big donations rolling in because a lot of your big donors are going to unfortunately be rich people, organized um, companies, corporate entities who want to donate to you, but in turn would like the tax refund. And in order to be given that tax refund ID to give to your donors, you need to have nonprofit status. There's different types of nonprofit status. There's the 501c3, and I believe, I don't know what the other one was, but the 501c3, you are a nonprofit organization, but you cannot get involved in the political process. You can't really endorse, I'm not sure if it's endorsing candidates. I believe that you can't make, you can't like sponsor legislation. That's 501c4, or I'm not, you got to double check on that one, and I'm going to update you next episode. But you have to check the differences. There's slight differences on what type of nonprofit organization you want to be and what purpose you want to serve. Because with JNH Beginnings, which is my nonprofit organization, 
we are more on the side of doing mutual aid programs, social programs, and less of the laws part about it. Even though we do want to get into looking at more unfair predatory housing laws and exposing them, I don't think we're going to be in the business of actually drafting bills and being heavily in the legislative process. So we are going to stay at 501c3. Woo! Y'all following me? Okay, good. Moving right along. If you want your to be part of a corporate entity, being a part of a corporate entity as a group, you could be like... Um, on an advisory board of a corporation or a business or something of that sort. So you're connected to a for-profit business. And there are activists who actually have like, well, I do this too, like individual deals with corporate entities who are using your branding and your image to basically align themselves with the cause that you align yourself with to push the company towards a more equitable path following me all right so these are the three different types of organization types of groups and once you figure it out where you want to be you choose where you want to be and you excel at where you want to be at but make sure that you know what you are doing you know where you are at and that you are doing everything for the right reasons doing everything for the right reasons performative activism stinks I'm not saying it stinks like blue tomato tomato tomato. It stinks as if at, at in the it stinks in the sense of it reeks and people can smell it from miles away and they'll be able to detect it. Especially people who have been doing this work for a long time, you will be told or you will hear about yourself that you are being performative in your activism. So make sure that you are starting for the right reasons and that you are presenting yourself in a way that reflects how you feel on the inside about the work that you are committing yourself to doing. Because nobody likes somebody who gets into activism to be a figure or for the possible monetary gains or to look a certain way for a job application, for a resume, or for a school admission, etc., etc. That's a perfect segue into what people say about each of these three things. Being a grassroots organizer is most likely the more like accepted route to go. It's where most people start at. It is, of course, it's the most accepted way to go. It, it feels the best because it's the one that's most connected to the community. It's nothing like grassroots love from your, your peers, your comrades, and your community. So that one is typically like the most accepted one. The nonprofit one Gets a little muddy because there is this concept called the Youth Activist Nonprofit Industrial Complex. It is when a youth activist creates a nonprofit and kind of like really does nothing for the community with it other than for, you know, performative reasons. And even if it's not it was not meant to go that way. It comes across that way if you are not being intentional about the initiatives that your organization takes on. So it is kind of like, you know, the community has mixed feelings about, you know, nonprofit organizations because 
all of their nonprofit, like they're not publicly traded and it's not generating any revenue, you can still get paid off of it. And grassroots organizing is majorly like volunteer work with stipends here and there. But you can get paid off of being a organizing director of a nonprofit. So you have to be very careful with the way you're implementing that type of work. And then corporate work, child, I don't even need to tell you why that could be very problematic of aligning yourself with gigantic companies majorly for the majority of the activism work that you do. It could become come across as very problematic because then you are aligning yourself so far outside of the community that you're kind of out of touch with what the community wants and what initiatives are going on to help the people because everything that you are doing is supposed to trickle down the line of positivity for the people that you are serving, for the most unprotected people that you are using your voice to protect and serve. All right, y'all. That is the people's politics segment. If you guys have any questions or need any further clarification in a further episode, or even me just getting on Instagram and talking more about it, Go ahead and comment that on my Instagram underneath any of the promo videos for this episode or DM me or tweet me or however you want to get into contact with me and we can talk about it. I would love to talk about more about the organizing process and the journey and how beautiful, heartbreaking, and transformative it is all in one. On to our next segment, which kind of like bleeds into people's politics, you know, the organizing thing, but gets more into the self-care version of it. We are getting into self-care is political. I gotta put me first. I gotta put me first. I gotta put me first, Lucius. I gotta put me first, Lucius. All right, y'all. Today in self-care is political, we are talking all about colorism. And... This is a touchy subject, so I'm going to take my time with it. I'm going to make sure that every term, word, and instance that I'm referring to is, I wouldn't say politically correct, but just accurate and is sensitive to everybody's experiences in this situation. To define colorism, and we're going to be talking a lot more about like colorism in the organizing field and how as a black woman you can implement self-care into that. But we're going to crescendo our way onto there and start off with the definition of colorism. Colorism is defined as prejudice or discrimination against individuals with dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group. Right. Y'all got that? Okay, cool. So basically what that was saying is that colorism is something that primarily happens within a ethnic or racial group already. Like there's colorism in the black community, there's colorism in the Asian community, and there's colorism in the East Indian and Middle Eastern community. Indian, I'm not sure if I said that right, Indian and Middle Eastern community. That's what I meant. Sorry, y'all. Every single community grapples with it a little differently, um, but we're primarily going to be talking about it in the black community this episode. Colorism and racism are two different things. Hot take. 
Ready, y'all? Hot ass take. Black people cannot be racist. Racism is has an implied institutional and systematic effect to it where the person being racist has direct power over the person that's being raped. That, that is receiving the racism. So black people in a societal societal higher like hierarchy way do not have any power. Therefore, they cannot be racist. We can be oppressive and prejudiced, but we cannot be racist because there are not many or if they are, they're outliers. They're the exception, not the rule. Instances of black people exerting racial power over white people and that hurting them systematically. That is not a thing. That is not real. So racism cannot be enacted by black people. But in the black community, we have this thing called colorism where darker skinned people are oppressed based on their skin tone. And all of this stems from, can I get a drum roll? Do we have drum roll still? No. Drum roll. Slavery. All right, it all stems from slavery. Back in the slavery days when, you know, we were living with our um, slave masters, there was a phenomenon happening where whites and slavers were trigger warning, trigger warning, were sexually assaulting and raping those that they have enslaved, causing their children to be of lighter skin or what they called it at the time, mulatto. That's why when the whole thing with um, Lotto came out and her name was originally Miss Mulatto from the rap game, she ended up changing it and everything because of the historical context that it comes with of her being a light-skinned woman. And that's where the word mulatto comes from. It was from somebody who was black and white. And a lot of things happen when, you know, the appearance of light-skinned, light-skinned black people was more prevalent in society. They were obviously preferred, the preferred imagery of black people. Like, they were like the standard of black excellence most of the time because they were their proximity to whiteness was a lot closer so they were preferred for a lot of things that were being when black people were being included they were the first pick always so much so that they had a paper bag test for a lot of times a lot of places you couldn't get into and things that you couldn't do if you were darker than a paper bag if you were darker than a paper bag brown paper bag then you were excluded but if you were lighter than that then you were included that is colorism and they had this concept called a house nigga and a field nigga. A field nigga was like a darker skinned black person who worked in the field. And a house nigga was usually a light skinned person or extremely submissive, dark skinned person who was allowed to be in the house. And all of this trickles down to today because the effects of colorism is still seen today even on the most minute level with children. Have you guys heard of this thing called the baby doll test well the baby doll test is basically when they took a whole bunch of children like kindergarten age children and they put a whole bunch of baby dolls of different shades and skin tones in front of them and they asked the children to pick which one is the beautiful baby doll which one is the ugly baby doll which one is a stupid doll which one is a smart baby doll 
And every single time, the negative traits were associated with the darker skin, whereas the more positive traits were associated with the lighter skin coming from a five-year-old. So there's no denying that these effects still are prevalent in our everyday society. And I could even remember, even from being a child, just growing up and hearing the microaggressions. My experience is a little bit different because I, you know, the idea of double consciousness where by W.E.B. Du Bois, where black people have a double consciousness where they have to code switch and, you know, be conscious of their blackness also in a white society. And I had kind of a triple consciousness being, you know, black American operating in a white world and with my African lineage too. So I experienced, you know, the terms like if you have not been called an African booty scratcher in your days of coming up, have you really been through something as an African and growing up in America? Because I don't heard African booty scratcher. I don't heard darky, monkey, all of the freaking above. I've heard it all. And okay, those are microaggressions. Those are those are very clear aggressions. But microaggressions are just little things like, oh wow, you are actually so beautiful for a black girl. Those are microaggressions because they imply that blackness is not supposed to be beautiful, which is extremely wrong and incorrect. Other microaggressions such as when you're watching the television and you always see the light-skinned mama with the very dark-skinned daddy with the light-skinned daughter and the dark-skinned brother, right? It's always the femininity has always been associated with how close you are to the white skin tone. Like those skin tones are more seen as more feminine, whereas black men have been more allowed to be, you know, socially accepted as being darker skinned. So I noticed all of these microaggressions growing up and there are things that are not explicitly said, but they're felt. And it's something where you talk to every dark skinned black girl and you mention something and it's like the floodgates open and we just have many, many, many stories of just feeling, you know, a little ostracized because of, because of our skin tone. And this brings me to the conversation of, or the ongoing debate that put pits black dark-skinned women against black light-skinned women together. And I have a couple of hot takes and a lot of distinctions that I want to make. So hang on there with me. Light-skinned women, and I'm going to talk about their side of the, the spectrum too because I'm not saying that they're, they've had a piece of cake either because they still experience racism 100,000%. What did Jay-Z said? What did Jay-Z say when he was like, still nigga, no matter what, still nigga. So you, they still experience racism. But there is a heavy distinction that needs to be made between the light skin and the dark skin experience in America and how that pertains to privileges and certain things that they are able to attain, especially in the activism and organizing space. But we're going to get there. We're going to start off with talking about the stories from Life Skillman that I've heard of, you know, or mixed women as well with mixed race, with black, 
because there are light-skinned black people who have two black parents who are fully black but are light-skinned and there are mixed black people who are mixed with you know other races as well and a lot of the time I hear the same story of from coming from light-skinned women that they always never felt at home in a community because they were never black enough for the black people but never white enough for the white people or if you're light-skinned black with two black parents you're just never black enough for the black people and if you're mixed you're never enough for your other side and you're never black enough for your black side so that is something that I hear from a lot of light-skinned women who I've talked to about this issue and I can sympathize with that because I've experienced something kind of similar with being African Sometimes, and there's this term that our parents like to use, which is kind of a, a derogatory term towards African Americans. It's called akata, and it basically means like a lost cat that doesn't know where its home is. And it's what a lot of Africans use against African Americans who don't know, you know, where their origins come from. And some, me being African, but coming to America like before I could even walk. And growing up in black American culture, sometimes I felt like I was too African for the black people and too black for the African people. So I can resonate with that feeling of not being totally solidified in a community. I totally can get that. I think the battle that both sides are having is that they think that the fight is with each other. Like, a lot of times when I see these the discourse online and even the conversations in real life, they pit black women of two different skin tones against each other when the person that we should be fighting is the crackers, y'all. We need to be fighting with the crackers. We need to be fighting with the crackers. I'm about to get Dr. Umar on y'all. Because all of this, all of it, is just a symptom Thank you, thank you, thank you. All of this is just a symptom of white supremacy. It's all white supremacy. Because at the end of the day, the thing that we are attaining, or the thing that we are attributing to a light-skinned woman's privilege is the fact that they are so close to whiteness. So arguing about it and putting it on a pedestal is giving validity to the argument that whiteness is something that is the Mecca and it's the ultimate thing to be, which is not right because all shades of black are beautiful. Are you kidding me? Like we have every flavor in the world possible in our community. So we need to focus on dismantling white racism, um, not white, white supremacy rather than dismantling each other, dismantling black women. That is not the goal. It's not the goal. But in the same breath, the battle that dark-skinned women have with light-skinned women is the acknowledgement of their proximity to whiteness that makes them more palatable to a white audience. Because, you know, you're just black enough to be able to say the n-word and to speak on the issues and have some relevancy to it but you're white enough to where you're not as threatening you know what i'm saying so because of that you have certain access to rooms and 
first pick of privileges that certain dark-skinned women don't have. And a lot of light-skinned women try to deny this the same way white people deny the fact that racism is still prevalent. And the two things, I compare them because it's highlighting an ignorance. It's just like when black people are homophobic. It's like, why are you homophobic? You're, you're black. You understand oppression arguably more than any other group in America, but you're still holding that oppression within you. It's the same thing in this instance. Why are you denying your privilege? All you have to do is acknowledge it and create a discourse around how you can use it to uplift those who are being ashamed for their skin tone. And to break it down... To break it down more into societal dynamics a little bit, taking it more outside the context of organizing, well, we haven't really gone into that too much yet, but to kind of talk about it in a way where everybody understands and to give an example, it's like, have you ever spoken with one of your mixed friends or one of your light-skinned friends and they tell you about like a dude they're dating, right? Or you meet the dude that they're dating and you know, some of the things that he says kind of make you make that face where you're like ooh he's something not right about this one something not right about this one and a lot of the times you hear them fetishize the lighter skin tone often more than not this mostly comes from darker skinned black men themselves although other types of men are known to do this as well where they fetishize oh the lights the 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 loose curls, that the more manageable, more manageable curls, or the lighter skin tone, or the possibility of colored eyes, you know, those Eurocentric beauty standards that are held to a high pedestal in our society. They date these guys who say these things, and then when they break up with them and they're talking shit about the dude, they're like, Oh, well, he said this, and he did that, and he did this. But at the same time, as a dark-skinned woman, you're thinking to yourself, but you still dated him, though, and you brought him around me. And I was subject to hearing his comments. But because you were not threatened at the time at these threats, you did not have the sense of urgency to dead them or dead him altogether. That very act of you being able to ignore colorism within your partner is privilege. And that is the whole idea of what we talk about when we say your proximity to whiteness allows you to enter rooms and gain privileges that people with darker skin tones don't get. But the gag is the favoritism that these men show you that you allow yourself to be fed and filled on is not real. It's fake. He's in love with the phenotype, baby. He's in love with the curly hair and the light skin. He doesn't really like you for you. He likes you for what you look like and how close to whiteness that can place him because he's going to be procreating with you. It's not real. So not only is it disenfranchising your black sisters that you claim to love so much, it is devaluing you of your own greatness as a black woman. So therefore, you need to be responsible for making sure you vet the men and the people in your life who want to compliment you, date you, or place you in positions of representing black people that you know deep down inside that you should not have.
okay? It is your responsibility to share these platforms, to dead these comments, and to make sure that your privilege is not getting to your head and that you are not using it in order to be in a position where your very existence is disenfranchising to those who are oppressed. I just want to make sure that is very clear. And that is the reason why the two communities, well, we're the same community, but the two subgroups have constant headbutting with each other because of that very reason. It's because they fail to acknowledge your proximity to whiteness and how palatable, palatable you are. Speaking of palatability, that brings us to colorism in the in the context of organizing and activism. It is a real issue in our in the organizing community. And I really want my black girls who are listening and who trust my word to know that you're going to run into it a lot. Even like sexism too. And it's just so much, the intersectionalities of it is crazy because it's intersections with sexism and colorism. Whereas like male organizers tend to be a lot more overbearing and want to take control and, you know, use women as supplementals because everybody knows Martin Luther King Jr. was not the creator of the bus of the of the boycott or of honestly a lot of the civil rights movements. He was a very powerful voice and a very powerful figurehead that got a lot done and we still celebrate him and cherish him for all of his contributions to civil rights. But that does not deny the fact that black women in the church were the ones organizing, driving and getting arrested a lot of the times for starting these movements, but because of the fact that a lot of them were dark-skinned black women, they did not get the the widespread acceptance and following from society that MLK did in them purposely choosing him to be the figurehead for that reason. So you're going to find a lot of that in the organizing community and it's disheartening. But once you find your group, though, your organizing group and your community, your your interpersonal community to organize with, it gets a lot better and it gets a lot more, you know, fun and feels a lot more like family. But there is a lot of that that does happen in our community. I don't want to lead you astray about that. To go back into the intersections of sexism and colorism real quick. There are a lot of organizers that male organizers that do allow black female voices to be a part of it. But a lot of the time it's supplemental rules or it's heavily associated with, with the fact if, with the, with, if there are a lot of black men organizers in the community, in the organizing space that, do incorporate black female voices into initiatives, but a lot of the time is their supplemental roles. They don't get the credit that they deserve. And a lot of the times, the requirements for you to even be chosen to be in this role is if you fit their bill of a, if attractiveness, like if they're attracted to you. A lot of the times when you organize the men, you're going to find out that a lot of men hit on you. They want to, they think you're going to be the Michelle Stay Barack child and you're not. You just want to come and do your job for the people. And it's really disheartening to experience. That's not to say that all men in the organizing space are like that, but I would not be surprised if you read into that at least once in your organizing journey. If you have it at all, come over here and teach me some secrets to tell everybody else because I need to know how you've managed to avoid that. 
Okay. We're going to go into a Refinery29 article that I saw on Instagram that I kind of want to use as a segue to talk deeper into this colorism and the organizing space conversation. And in this Refinery29 article, there's this quote that reads, if you are a light-skinned black person, being aware of your blackness is optional. And Angelica Macado or Machado, I'm not sure how to say it. I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name, but they are the author of this quote. And in the article, what's everything okay? Huh? Okay. And in the article, a passage reads. Okay, so the article starts off with, I guess, a light-skinned lady complaining about, you know, being the voice of reason for the black community in academic spaces. And a colleague responds to her and says, you are a safe black person. My friend and colleague Belinda said to me one day, I took a sip of my coffee while everything inside me cringed. I had spent 10 minutes venting to her because I was frustrated with constantly being the one to speak up about racial biases during our school's professional developments. And she reminded me that my proximity to whiteness was why people at the very least pretend to listen and call me aggressive. Oh, pretend to listen and didn't call me aggressive when I... Wait, don't don't turn it off. Bring it here. You know why this happened, right? You know why this happened, right? Yeah, I watched it and I tried to catch it. And it just... No, it's because you fell asleep. You're supposed to move the cursor around regularly. Here you go. Sorry, y'all. But to go back into what I was saying was why people, at the very least, pretended to listen and didn't call me aggressive when I spoke up. This is a very loaded article. And a lot of, well, every single voice in this article, except for that first passage, was... It was uh, a voice of a LGBT, not LGBT, sorry, wrong disenfranchised community of a dark-skinned Afro-Latina. Because this article was about, was called Afro, it was about Afro-Latina representation in America is increasing, but not for dark-skinned black women. It talks about the palatability of a light-skinned black Latina being showcases the face of Afro-Latinism. I don't know if that's a word, but being the face of it and how it's not fair and it's not a representation of, you know, the full community. And this is often very, very prevalent in the organizing community, especially when you kind of pivot into the corporate space and when election season comes around and... Corporations want to make pro-voting videos 
or there's a campaign that's launching and they're looking for somebody to be in their campaign or even advisory boards, more often than not, you'll see the likeness of Sean King's in there or people who can be ambiguous and could kind of play with their race fitting to the situation that they are in. And a lot of these corporate entities make those whose black experience is a little bit different, the face of extremely black issues, which is a problem. And I want corporate entities to listen very closely when I say this. You cannot use light skin or mixed race black people as the sole face of your political movement within your company. It is not accurate and it is not the totality of the black experience. Am I denying their voices not to be showcased at all? Absolutely not. But a lot of the time, there are the only voices or the biggest voice showcased in your campaigns and your movements, and it is not fair. And they cannot speak to the full black experience that you have when you are darker skin, where you wake up and you are black. You go to sleep and you are black. You are never asked what you're mixed with. You are never asked where you come from or anything like that because it is no mistake that you are fully black. And I truly believe, I don't know if this is a problematic take, but those are the faces that should be a part and honestly mostly showcase when there are movements about black issues. Because it's that concept of if you take the least protected person and you make them the face, everybody above them in society, in the societal hierarchy is automatically protected. And when you are taking the palatability of a light-skinned person and making them the face of, the, of black issues, you are leaving darker-skinned black people susceptible to being ignored for the issues that they face even more intensely than the person that you are making the face of the movement and it is not fair to those who experience it day in and day out and I feel as though representation matters immensely when I did my HP commercials in 2019 I think the most important impactful part of that experience for me was and I always say was when I got a DM from a little dark-skinned black girl who told me that she saw a dark-skinned black woman as president and she was so excited and so happy because that is not the norm. A lot of the times when you see in the media, like the when they say the first black woman to do this or the first black man to do that, it is always, 90% of the time, a light-skinned black person. The president, the vice first woman vice president, woman headlining Coachella, famous writers, historians, even our most prominent activists that we follow on Instagram. They're all light-skinned black people. And it's not to diminish their blackness or their experience with racism and all the other isms, but it is something that resonates deep within you as a dark-skinned black person that creates a little voice in your head that kind of permeates and tells you that you're not good enough in a way or that you are not, your time for representation is going to be far more further ahead in the future because 
the palatability of a light-skinned voice is enough to not make a white audience feel completely uncomfortable because they can see themselves in the person that you are having represent a fully black movement. You following me? So therefore, it kind of dif- disenfranchises our voices and it's not completely fair. So to all corporate entities listening, please be mindful of who you're putting as the face of your movements and what you want to align your company with. Okay. All right. Whoo, child, that was a mouthful. Um, we're going to move on over to our next segment, which is politics and pop culture. Bitch, I'm back. I'm popular the man. Today in politics and pop culture, we are going to be only talking about the infamous Elon Musk and how he just bought Twitter for $44 billion, which is freaking insane, $44 billion. Um, so Elon Musk recently bought Twitter for $44 billion after him announcing that he was going to buy Twitter months ago, but... We kind of forgot about it, but I guess he was just in like the clearing the red tape stages and he's officially purchased it. And that's come with a lot since then. Since then, he has began cleaning house, literally. He has fired at least four top Twitter executives, including the chief executive and the chief financial officer, which is crazy. Mr. Musk had arrived at Twitter's San Francisco headquarters on Wednesday, last Wednesday, and met with engineers and ad executives. He self-describes himself as a free speech absolutist. Very concerning. And he said that, that's usually dog whistle politics for, you can be racist and say whatever you want in the name of free speech, but moving along, has said that he wants to make the social media platform a more freewheeling place for all types of commentary and that he would reverse the permanent ban of former President Donald J. Trump from the service, which is going to be interesting to see considering he is back in the presidential race. I feel like we're going to get zapped back into 2020 and the panic attacks and the fucking crazy shit in the media is going to start again and it's going to be all from this. That's going to play a huge role into this presidential election coming up, by the way. And in addition to that, he is requiring people to pay $8 to receive and keep their blue check, which is their verification check on Twitter. And this is kind of, you know, concerning because it adds a sense of classism because it's something now that can be attained with money. And on top of that, Previously, in order to get a blue check, you had to be a prominent figure who is a public figure and people follow and value your content and so on and so forth. And now that you can buy it, they've run into the issue of people impersonating those who would have been given a blue check prior to Elon Musk being the owner of Twitter. And this is very dangerous because on one account... 
There was an account pretending to be an American pharmaceutical giant, Eli Lilly and Company, using the name Eli Lilly and Co. They announced on their fake impersonating Twitter page that insulin was now free. In turn, the Eli and Lilly, the Eli Lilly and Company stock price fell after this tweet went viral. In addition to people being fake news sources coming out and tweeting things and pertaining news sources saying all types of crazy stuff. And even still then, Elon Musk still is not going to take away the $8 for a blue check. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he regulates fake accounts on the platform and this issue because... I can see this becoming a big, big, big problem, especially with all of the misinformation that's already being spread in, in on the internet. Which brings me to naming my fool of the week, Elon Musk. You're ashamed of yourself. Are you not embarrassed? This is really embarrassing. Yes, you are the idiot of the week because for the sole reason that you did not buy Twitter because you care about human interaction, because you care about social media, or even for your being the bullshit excuse as being a free speech absolutist. You bought Twitter because you wanted, it was a pissing contest. You wanted to show that you could do it and that you did it because if you really cared about all of the aforementioned things, you would have sat down with the diversity and inclusion group. You would have sat down with the former executives and you would have got a feel for how Twitter has been run for how the world currently loves it. Instead of firing everybody, including the whole diversity inclusion unit, not taking into account how much black Twitter has made Twitter Twitter. Black Twitter discourse is Twitter, if you ask me, because a lot of the discourses and a lot of the things that go on are primarily from black creators on the platform. So it's going to be interesting to see how he incorporates DEI into the company, if he does at all, to be honest, and to see who else he puts into place. I'm already like in the past year, this past year, I've already kind of gone off of Twitter. I really usually go on there once in a while. So I also did read somewhere that Twitter's revenue is plummeting and that they're going to be watching for that which is probably the reason why they're making people pay for verification checks because it's going to give them a little bit of revenue but i said that all to say that elon musk is an idiot and he is the castles full of the week crowned by the princess so come and get your joker boots and your clown nose elon musk thank you very motherfucking much and that brings us to the end of today's episode end of Season one, episode three. I can't believe we're already in the third episode. And I'm so excited to just continue talking about all of the intersections of politics, politics, and pop culture. And I will catch y'all next week at the same time, at the same place, in the same castle. Thank you guys for listening, and I will talk to you later. I never trade you for anybody else singing brown skin girl. Skin just like pearls. The best thing in the world. I never trade you for anybody else singing.